You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you for um, for all that we have. Be with us now, uh, uh, especially as we think about um, Jacob and his wrestling. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so moving through this uh, short little series, I don't want to say it's filler, but in some ways it's filler, just kind of a, uh, snapshots pulling things out of Genesis um, here in the summer uh, with sporadic attendance and all that, not really trying to make a cumulative word on anything. And this is a just a great passage, um, Genesis 32, uh, 22 to 32. This is where Jacob wrestles. We easily say Jacob wrestles with the angel or Jacob wrestles God. Um, the text just calls him a man. Um, it's very ambiguous intentionally so. Um, Jacob wrestles a dark figure, an ominous figure. There's a lot of equivocation and ambiguity here. And I think that's part of what compels us with the text. Um, so just thinking about it where we were last week, because I was going to teach on this last week, I thought, no, because I, I had this Sunday open anyway, and I'll just kind of rehearse the life of Jacob last time. Um, won't do that in length, but just remembering Jacob is the son of Isaac, who himself was the son of Abraham, these great patriarchs who were great men of faith, because faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. No one may boast. These great men of faith who had nothing in and of themselves that was exemplary. If anything, we read their stories and you're just like, oh my gosh, there's hope for me yet because these guys were a train wreck. Where uh, we looked last week at Isaac who had received himself um, as the, so you might say, the grandson of the promise, the son of Abraham, the one to whom the promise was initially given. Abram, Abram, here I am. Um, I'm going to multiply you even in your old age so that your offspring shall outnumber the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. 25 years later, that came true. 25 years of waiting for, uh, for Sarah's womb to open, um, uh, for a miracle to occur, and for the Lord to bring about Isaac. So preposterous was this birth, but even his name, he laughs. Laughter. Why? Because it's laughable what God did out of this old womb from this old man to bring forth this young life. But then Isaac was no saint in the way that we use the word. He was in the saint in the way that the Lord uses the word, where he was given the prophecy that um, from you I shall continue the promise, and through your children will that promise continue to be delivered. And Isaac's like, okay, um, but here it is. The younger will be the one. Not okay. Um, uh, comes through, we saw a couple of weeks ago, um, the compelling, defining moment of, uh, of Isaac carrying the wood up to the to Mount Moriah after three days, waiting for the Lord to provide, had to define him. He had that encounter with God, and yet he still goes back 
after hearing from God himself, direct, unmediated word from God, saying that from your children I will continue the promise, but it won't be who you think. It'll be the younger will serve the older. And Isaac says, no, I'm going to prefer the older. And he preferred Esau. Um, all his life he preferred Esau. But Rebecca, his wife, preferred Jacob. I mean, preferred yeah, Jacob, uh, the younger. And Isaac, when he finally gets duped, where Jacob comes out named heel grabber or deceiver or liar or cheater or positioner, all these words could mean Jacob. Um, uh, not a nice name. The names, obviously, in Genesis especially, have huge weight where the names define the, the character and quality of the person. Um, so how would you like your name? Hey, cheat. Hey, positioner. Hey, hey, uh, you know, one-upper. Um, that was Jacob's name. Uh, but Esau, which just means hairy, because he was very hairy. Um, not not Harold, but, but of, of, of much. He was in a suit nature. Um where the deceiver deceives his father, always jockeying, always wrestling, Jacob is, always wrestling uh, for position, always wrestling for whatever the blessing is, what he thinks the blessing is. And so he goes into Isaac when Isaac was old, who couldn't see um, uh, and dresses up like uh, Esau. And Esau's clothes with, you know, puts on gloves to make it feel like they're, they're hairy hands. Um, because Isaac pulls him over and it sounds like Jacob, but it smells like Esau. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with my smell, and he gives Jacob the blessing, thinking it was Esau. And then Esau comes in and says, "Here, I'm back. Can we can we do this thing, the blessing?" And he's like, Isaac starts to shake. He starts to tremble. This is the pregnant moment there in Genesis um, 28, I think it is, maybe 27. Um, uh, we think it's, I think, we, I used to think it was Isaac just being angry, just sort of welling up thinking, oh, he did it again. You know, the deceiver deceived me. My own son duped me. I don't think it is. I think it's Isaac having reckoned, been reckoned with God when he was 12, going up to Mount Moriah, was then reckoned in that moment where he realized that I've been positioning myself against God all these years, trying to prefer the older Esau for the younger Jacob. And the Lord's work will be done in his way and it will not lack. And in that trembling moment, that moment of, of openness, in a way that Isaac would say it, uh, the one who came in and fed me earlier, he has my blessing. And then Esau gets mad and vows to kill his brother. Now Jacob's on the run. Um, and he goes through this whole place. I won't rehash all that. Um, well, we come to this moment now where Jacob wrestles with God. So let's set this up before we read the text. Um, Jacob, the name Jacob almost sounds like wrestle. It's not quite like this, but it's almost like pin and pen, P-I-N-P-E-N. The word for wrestle and the word for Jacob, you could almost misunderstand. And so when you say that Jacob wrestled the man or a man, it almost sounds like Jacob Jacobed a man. Can almost hear that. There's a lot of wordplay where you've got Jacob and that verb for wrestle, which I think it's Jacob and, and Jacob or something like that. I don't do Hebrew. 
And then there's the Jabbok, which also sounds like Jabok, you know. And so you've got Jacob, Jacob, and Jabok. And so there's all this wordplay in the Hebrew. So it's really poetic, and there's this, it's very confusing, which I think is part of. I'll go ahead and put this up, just so we can stare at it. This is the only slide I have. That's part of the whole dense nature of these ten verses, which are so confusing. A lot of equivocation. You can't tell who's who, what's up, what's down. There's a lot that's hidden that must be made known. Part of that is Jacob coming to realize, have it defined for him to bring clarity on, uh, on who, in fact, he's been wrestling his whole life. He thought it was his brother and maybe his uncle Laban because Jacob being the wrestler, the deceiver, the liar, the cheat, the one-upper, you know, he's always positioning. That's what I mean when I say one-up, like puts it here he's always trying to figure out okay what's the game that i can play so i can be the guy on top let me always do that and he gets really wealthy doing it you know totally dupes his uncle laban after he was duped you know laban said you know oh you like my daughter we'll work seven years and he didn't specify which daughter and so he married the comely one um leah and then works another seven years for um uh, Leah and Rachel, and then works another six years for sheep. So in all that, and he does a lot of deceiving, and he, and he gets really, really, really wealthy. Um, so he's on the run from Laban, thinking he was always wrestling Esau. Wrestled in the womb, we're told. Wrestled when they're coming <laughs> out, because Jacob's grabbing at the heel. Wrestled for the birthright. That story of Esau coming in, saying, I'm starving, let me have some soup. You can have some soup if you get your birthright. You know, always wrestling. Um, always wrestling for control of the family, for the, uh, for the heir to the fortune. Always wrestling Jacob uh, in recompense for being duped. I would think that, you know, a, uh, a liar hates it when he's lied to. And so the psychology is easy to read there. Um, and, he, uh, and he really sets up Laban, except, <laughs> lo and behold, Laban got really mad, and so here's Laban, here's Jacob, they run, um, so he's running this way, and now here's Esau, the other guy who wants to kill him, and so here he is at the Jabbok River on the borders, a lot of stuff happens in the Bible on the borders, right in that place where the Lord is at the edge, the homiletical point, little preaching point, where's your border? That's the edge that the Lord is working on, he's always right there, and he's always going out, he's always pushing you know, drawing us deeper and deeper and deeper. He never is content because there's always an edge. And the Jabbok is literally here, geographically, the edge. Laban coming this way, Esau over here, and he's right there. And Jacob's going to realize, I've had a fundamental attribution error. I have thought I was wrestling Esau. And then I thought I was wrestling my uncle Laban. I was always trying to game them, but it's been God the whole time. So here's the text. Um, short verses, if you have your Bible or if you want one, there's over here um, uh, in Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of his joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, 
the man said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So, a few things just to kind of pull around and of course interrupt um, it's always best when there's interaction but a few things as I read this probably six or eight things but trying to pull it down to four or so three or four we'll see how far we get um, God defines our real problem we meet God alone that's a scary part um, uh, we meet God our God meets us at our center and not on the periphery that's a theme I want to touch on and that we meet God in our weakness and in his weakness. So these four things. God defines the real problem. We meet God alone. God meets us at the center and out in the periphery. And we meet God in our weakness and in his weakness. So let's time in. What do I mean by that? Um, here's this painting. Let's just kind of set this up a little bit. Um, it's by a guy named H.A.P. Grieshopper. Um, uh, a German, as you would guess, um, uh, died, I think, in the 70s. I'm not sure of that. Um, obviously, a modern artist. Uh, Jacob Wrestling the Angel, I think is what it's called. Um, uh, watercolor, um, equivocal, uncertain, ambiguous. All of that is the intent here. I like this. I decided to go with just one painting and not several. Um, Rembrandt's got some famous ones of Jacob wrestling the angel, which are well-defined. You see the angel, and it's very obvious the angel's in control, and you see Jacob. It looks very stoic. It's Rembrandt's famous painting of it. Um, I don't know if you've ever wrestled. We used to wrestle in off-season football in, uh, in high school. Let me tell you, after, after 15 seconds, Jeremy wrestled. Um, after 15 seconds, you're, you're gone. I mean, you're just spent. I mean, it's all in. And so those paintings, I, I can't resonate with them because it's like, that's not how you wrestle. I mean, it is, it is a full-on uh, body experience. Um, something like this, where you can't tell where one starts, one stops anatomically. Things aren't even in the right place. Um, there's four feet, so we get that. There's two figures but they don't really go where they're supposed to go. You can't tell, is that a tongue and a lips or is that something else? Is he striking, is he pulling? Where are the other arms? Um, this is the meeting of Jacob at the Jabbok as he Jacob's somebody, this dark unnamed figure. So then I want us to leap too quickly through the story on the other side and even to read Christ in there or not yet, um, certainly going to be there, uh, and not go too far to allegorize, which is a good reading. Don't want to say it's not there, but not too quickly to allegorize that we're all wrestling. You, know, you could take my border comment a few minutes ago, and so where are your borders, and where is God wrestling you right now, and how are you, how are you fighting him? And he's saying, you know, you know, let go. Um, 
Is that wrong? That is not a wrong reading. But let's don't go there too fast. The story is pregnant with drama. And this, this nature, this honest reckoning, wrestling, grappling with the way I think experience so often goes. Um, that same night, so there's a time, and it's a particular time, and it's a definite time. It's got an appointedness to it where there's a sense of that same night. At this particular place, at this particular time, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children across the ford of the Jabbok. He began to go from this trap to this trap. And he's right there on the border. And he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. We meet God alone. I'm reminded, I don't know why I was, but it was a reminder of the rich young ruler in Jesus' story. Remember the rich young ruler whose great wealth, um, but also his, uh, his earnest uh, desire, I think, to be faithful religiously. Um, and he comes to the Lord and says, Teacher, what, um, what must one do? Speaking abstractly, what must one do to, uh, to inherit eternal life? Just, you know, you know, obey the Lord your God and love him with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I've done these since I was a boy. Remember what Jesus said? Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man was downcast, and he turned away, and he went away sad, for he had great wealth. There's an echo there that somehow when Jacob sends everything over, he's completely alone. Some of the language in the old days would say he was, he was, he was, the, he was, he was naked. Naked and, naked and afraid. Isn't that the show? Um, there is this nudus homo, which is the way it would be described. The, uh, the man alone is what that literally means, or figuratively you could say that, this, this idea of, of, of being exposed and vulnerable, just all alone, not even possessions. Not my wife, not my second wife, not my first mistress, not my second mistress. Ah, that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> um, uh, not my children, not my camels, not my sheep, not my goats, not my donkeys, not my 401k, my 403b. Not my position, my title, my education, my bloodline, my phone number, not my, um, not my wits, nothing. It is dark on an appointed time, and I'm all alone. And what does this remind me of? Well, of course, death. And I do want to say this. I don't want to ever sort of, I want to say this several times a year when I have the chance to say something. One of the ways that I see my role, very humbly, at the Advent is to help people. I always cry when I do this is to help each of us to die. That's a heavy word. You know, no, we'll pray for it's decades yet. But we'd be doing no service if we weren't about that business of helping people prepare for their death. I mean, their physical, biological death when their bodies will no longer breathe, but the bios will be reversed. As Doug Webster, it stuck with me for this last six weeks, um, said, now a new biology will come where it would no longer be a biology based upon death, but a zoe, a life based upon, a, a, a biology based upon life. And that somehow in the new order of things, where everything now tends to entropy and decay and death, there it will move in the complete opposite and it will be expansive and life and growth. And it will never stop. And it will be this, this new way. 
we'll meet God alone. And you'll go and you'll see Josh when he's your surgeon and all that stuff. And and, uh, and and you'll have to go to the hospital. And some of us will come. We'll visit you. And and, and people will be praying for you. And all that's true. It's nothing to do about the, the vitality of the community of faith, but also your family, your friends, and to be a part of your church. All that's true. But there's a moment at which you're all alone. That naked you came into this world and naked you shall leave. Um, uh, as Job would say. Or... Um, well, it's in the scriptures several times. Job says it. Um, Lamentation says it. Uh, Paul says it. That at the beginning, we come into the world alone. And at the end, we leave the world alone. And I think there's that echo here where the Lord strips it all down and he meets us in the midst of community. That's true. But there is an extreme one-on-oneness that goes on here. And he took them and he sent them across and everything else that he had. And Jacob was alone. So now the problem begins to be clarified. Where Jacob, the wrestler, the Jacober, um, begins to recognize, well, the man assaults him. The reasonable assumption that he saw is here. He saw me and he came and he's ambushing me. But at some point... There's the recognition that it's not Esau. There's the recognition that my problem is not what I thought the problem was. And we can come back up here a little bit, and that happens all the time. Um, I see marriage counseling and all that. I mean, that's just, it's almost laughable, but you got to cry. Um, that people come in fighting about all sorts of stuff. But you know what? The, the fight is never about that fight. It's not about the paper towels or the underwear on the floor or the different perspectives on time that people have um, or whatever it is. It's always about something else. And in fact, you're probably not fighting who you think you're fighting. And that's what Jacob started to realize, that the fight is not about position, about whatever we thought blessing was. And it wasn't even about who we thought it was, Esau or Laban, that there was something else entirely going on. He made categorical errors at the very beginning, recognizing that I don't fight against flesh and blood, against Esau and Laban, but I'm fighting against God himself. I'm pushing against the goad, as Isaiah would say. And so he goes through and he has this um, this clarity. One thing I want to say and just kind of open us up to it is uh, if we see ourselves at least as two hearts that beat as one, um, as an old creature and a new creature, as that which is um, unredeemed and that which is, is, uh, has, has heard the word of the gospel, the good news that Christ Jesus died for you, and that part believes. Like with the centurion, um, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that we have these, these mixed. Solzhenitsyn's great description um, that the, the line between good and evil, between justified and sinner, runs between every human heart through the day that we die. Old, I mean, it's good news. It's news around here, but stuff that we talk about a lot. With that understanding of, of, of human nature, of who each of you are, who, who I am, uh, we reckon with this idea that our old self, that part which wants it his way, which wants it her way, who's still grappling and wrestling to be God, to say, this is what I want. This is when I want it. This is how I want it. Um, God is an intractable problem to us. That's the word I wanted to have there. 
that God is a real problem. He is a burden. Why? Because God meets us in our center. C-E-N-T-E-R. And not on the periphery. This was something I got from Tim Keller. Um, really, that's probably what I thought of most of this week. Um, how do my prayers go far too often to my embarrassment? Um, sometimes they're really good. It's like, Lord, be with Mei Mei and help her in this ex. Um, Lord, be with Caroline or Margaret. Um, help so-and-so to feel better. Those are all good. You know, our family, um, concern about other people. Uh, sometimes it's just like, Lord, help me to know what to say so I don't embarrass myself. Eh, it's getting a little bit less holy, um, a little bit more human. Sometimes it's just like, I don't want to go tonight. And I'm just tired. You know, just make it so it works out okay. And suddenly I'm just telling God what I want. My center, what my heart loves, my will chooses, and my prayers are trying to justify. But it's a self-centered heart. At the extreme, it's it's uh, uh, nothing wrong with this, but I guess I'm saying there's something wrong with this. Lord, you know, help me get the promotion. Help me... Let her say yes. <laughs> you know, that was my prayer when I was 14. Um, uh, you know, self-centered rather than God being in the middle. And it may not even be evil in the way that we normally do it. This isn't me sort of praying, Lord, you know, smite the Amalekites or whatever. Um, uh, but self-centered nonetheless where I am trying to tell God what I want to see happen. I'm dictating the blessing, in other words. And that's what Jacob has been doing his whole life. Telling God, uh, yep, if you, we saw this last week, if you uh, if you increase my wealth and keep my family safe and, um, uh, and let me enjoy a long life, yeah, you'll be my Lord. I'll, 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 I'll say yes to that. That's a good idea. Um, that is not meeting God at the center. But as Tim Keller said, that's meeting God in the suburbs. Um, he doesn't do that. He meets you downtown. He comes right to the core of who you are, and he wants to displace that and undo Andrew's really remarkable sermon, undo all the isms that are there, classism, racism, prejudgmentalism, which is just prejudice, prejudgments, um, all these things that I think I know how they ought to go. Uh, God undoes all that, and that's part of this encounter at the... Um, at the Jabbok. Let me stop. I'm just kind of going off. Feedback there. That's kind of a set a lot there because that's a lot of how I pray. That's most of how I pray, in fact. And I realize I don't think I'm really, I'm really clear on that. But God meeting us at our center and not on the periphery. Thoughts there? Thoughts on this? Thoughts anywhere? Before I kind of go and talk about weakness? I think that's right. I think, thank you, sweetheart. Yep, yep. For the record, that was Mamie. That's why I said sweetheart. Um, thank you, sweetheart. I think that's right. I mean, that's where it comes through, where, uh, Lord, but not my will be done, but yours. I mean, that, that, that can be a coda to any one of our prayers, as it was for our Lord in Gethsemane, where, my goodness, the best prayer ever, you know, 
there's a prayer to pray, Lord, let this cup pass for me. If there's any other way for this to happen besides that that cross, please let that But not my will be done, but yours. You know, into your hands I commit my body, soul, mind, spirit. Um, all things and all manner of things are yours. You are the one who works all in all and everything. If omnipotence means anything, it means that. So not my will be done, but yours. And that is really, actually a really hard prayer. I, I mouth it, but I don't mean it. And I've told, I've said this before, especially when it comes to my kids. I really, I have a hard time saying, Lord, your will be done in their lives. Because of what this is. Because if I have an idea of what a godparent might do, it's something like that. That their love for my children, for our children, will be, I won't say better, but a different quality. Where they'll be able to pray that. That, Lord, let Margaret and Caroline, the cracky girls, let them know you and let your work be done in their, in their lives, in your way. Your will be done. Because as a parent, that's hard to say. If you have any sense of this kind of encounter that we're talking about, where God's going to meet us in our weakness and not in our strengths. Um, so thank you for that. That really helps to clarify. Yeah. Um, and then it frees, I think, as Paul's all used to say, and then you can pray for parking spaces, which I do. As something as banal as that, that Lord, let, the, let there be a space when I'm running 15 minutes late to, uh, to be able to, to park. I'm trying to go to church because there's no place to park in the midday. Um, and when you do find a place, it's $6 to feed the meter. Who has that many quarters? Uh, thoughts? Thank you. That's good. Mm. We don't want that, and so our prayers are always for that. But actually, I think God uses failure as a good teacher, so we do a disservice sometimes yep. if we prop our kids up yep. too much. Too much. Mm-hmm. Put too many pillows around yeah. when uh, they learn when, how <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> um, Let's think about weakness just for a minute. Um, probably go probably in here. Um, this isn't paradigmatic, big word. This isn't this, the Jacob story here, I don't think, is meant to be a formula. It's not mechanistic. Um, it's not like insert tab A and through the machine outcomes through slot B. This is how life goes. But <laughs> how does God work? Here's the grand, great grandson of the promise, Jacob. You know, through you, Abraham, uh, I will create a people chosen for myself. Um, uh, really? Yeah. So the blessing. The blessing. It's going to come through you. And then to Isaac, it's renewed. And to Jacob, it's renewed. And then the Lord says, Jacob, you're the one. Though you're the younger, you shall, uh, the, 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 the older shall serve you. I love you. And so therefore, I'm going to cripple you. I'm going to clobber you. I'm going to, to make you weak. It's a weird way that the Lord works. 
I've been thinking about this for literally 20 years, and I, I, it's, I'm still amazed by it, confounded by it, and renewed by it every time I encounter this head-on. Here's the word. Um, when the man saw, uh, this is verse 25, that he did not prevail against Jacob. We'll come back to that. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. They've been wrestling all night. The day is coming, so you got the night-day thing, the whole revelation, you know, let me go, day is coming. Um, I have to be hidden, this equivocal nature, God arranging it so he stays ambiguous. Uh, they've been wrestling. I mean, going at it. Remember, 15 seconds in, I'm spent. Um, and they're going at it for six hours. You know, blood, sweat, tears, can't breathe, all this sort of stuff. And then the most curious thing happens. The detail is given. Uh, when the man saw they are not prevailing, it's Jacob. He touched his hip socket. Now, you know, I act like, like to act like I know words and all that stuff. What do you think that word means in the Hebrew, touched? It means touched. <laughs> it doesn't mean, you know, pressed with great force. It doesn't mean, you know, with struck with a, with, with a real blow. It's like in Mark 5, the woman who'd been bleeding for 14 years, and she saw Jesus, and she said, if I could only touch the hem of his garment. And she goes up, and it's just, who touched me, said Jesus. The disciples are like, what are you talking about? This is city stages. That's a native reference. Um, this, is, uh, this, is the Auburn, this is the Iron Bowl. Everybody, the whole world is here. And everybody's pressing in on you. You say, who touched me? And Jesus is like, yes. The balance of power between the divine and the, uh, the profane, between me and my deity and the world in its humanity has just been altered. And there's that sense here where they've been grappling and pushing and pulling and touching each other the whole time. But at this appointed moment, this blow, this not a blow, this glance, this touch, this mere touch, and it totally threw Jacob out, crippled him for the rest of his life. This is not an injury that you can overcome, especially you know, 5,000 years ago. Uh, and it's that moment where Jacob knew, you know, like Moses would later in in uh, in Exodus 3, you know. If I had shoes on, I would take them off, for I'm on holy ground. Um, and like Moses, Jacob starts to recognize this is not a normal fight. Because um, uh, Moses is the one to whom it was granted. Moses said, let me see your face. And he said, you cannot stand my glory, but I will put you behind a rock. Uh, almost like the eclipse thing. I'll put you behind a box and these things, and then I'll pass by, and then I'll... Take my hand off so you can see my backside. Um, something like that was granted to Moses, but not Jacob. But that same desire of meeting God in weakness, where God, in fact, arranges weakness so often. Um, this difficult, uh, confounding, scandalous, offensive and yet somehow renewing and hopeful idea that God is most present where he seems most absent, that his grace and his glory, as Paul would say, is somehow perfected 
and most known in our weakness and not our strength. Connected to the, per- not the periphery, but the center, right to who we are. What does your heart love? Ashley Knoll is coming back to the Advent in a month or so. His great, you know, fantastically uh, dense condensation of a ton of theology, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What does your heart love? That's your center. And that's where the Lord's touch happens and brings you right down to it. Um, last part. That's our weakness because I want to get to this part. Where is Christ here? Well, think about this. Um, let's think about this. If the Lord works through our weakness, how much more does he work through his? It's a weird thing to say. The Lord limiting himself. Well, that's got some echoes there. Um, for Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but poured himself out and taking the form of a man, made himself obedient, even obedient to death, um, death on a cross, where in the incarnation, as no one had ever seen God, yet as the word became flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, God limiting himself so that now, well, let me say this analogy. This was also Tim Keller. But this is what I used to do with my girls, and I'm sure most fathers probably did. You know, it's this great time when they're little. We used to call it daddy ball. Um, but you get on the floor with your kids and you kind of wrestle. You know, imperfect analogy that I'm about to have, but, but it fits. What's the, you know, you could squash these two-year-olds like this. You know, they're just gone. God wrestling Jacob and all. So how do you not hurt your children? Well, it's pretty easy, actually. You just get on your back. You take away all your weight. You take away all your leverage. You take away all your power. You just get on your back. I would get into a ball. Uh, and so now they're having all the shots. Well, comes through, and God, as it were, didn't put his weight on Jacob. It's as if he's playing daddy ball, and he just kind of rolls around. It's not patronizing. It's where it's an imperfect analogy. But he's not put his weight onto Jacob. But when it's time for the beginning of the definition to come, for clarity to come to Jason, when he wants for, to Jacob, when the Lord says it's time for epiphany, for an unveiling, for a realization, he touches him. It's not his weight, but he touches him, and he upsets the balance of power. But what did he not do for the Lord? As Isaiah would say, it was the will of God to crush him. You could say it this way. He did not spare his weight against his own son. Um, for God did not spare his own son, but gave him up um, so that we all would have eternal life. That God crushed Christ on the cross in the way that he did not crush Jacob, in the way that he does not crush you or me. So here's this place of the echo of Aslan. Um, you know, it's one of the great lines from... C.S. Lewis's little language in the wardrobe where the children, the Peavances, I guess, are coming in from England and, and just starting to get to know Narnia, and they hear that there's a lion that's on the loose. Lions are scary. It's like, a lion? Was he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, safe? Lord, no. He's not safe. He's the king. But he's good. He's good, I tell you. That was a really weak accent, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> that's what beavers sound like, though. You didn't know that. <laughs> Um, not safe, but good. The promise holds that uh, he crushed the Lord. 
It was the will of God to crush him so that we would not be crushed. As he meets us alone, as he meets us in our weaknesses, he will not leave us or forsake us, but bring us forth um, renewed. And similar to Jacob, and we'll stop here, uh, Jacob goes through an absolute character transformation. It's a really interesting character study. If you look at Jacob before this encounter and afterwards, he is not the same man. In some ways, unlike Isaac, who was did not have his character changed in the way that Jacob did after his father took him up to the Mount Moriah. Uh, but after this, the name is changed. You are no longer deceiver and liar and grabber, but you're Israel, which means something like God protects or God strives, you know, strives against God. It means a lot of different things. Um, it has to do with this relationship between you and God. That's what Israel means. Um, uh, and now you're no longer a grabber, but you are in a direct relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel. Um, and that's the word that's been given to us. So let me stop there. Um, God meets us alone. God meets us in our center and not in our suburbs. And God meets us in our weakness, but also his weakness, uh, where he does not put his full weight on us. Thanks be to God. Um, but did so with his son so that we could be spared. Um, just some, some musings from Genesis 32. Thoughts, questions? Let's pray. Well, last word about this. And interesting. I'll do this quick. And what's the punchline of the story? Jacob, you win. <laughs> it says, and Jacob prevailed. That's a parable of grace. Um, not just mercy. Mercy is God didn't kill him. Grace is you win. And Jacob prevailed. Um, I'll leave that as a hanging chad, so to speak. That uh, What? Jacob won? He won a wrestling match with God. Um, somewhere in there. That just smacks of grace. So it's okay. Lord, take these words feebly offered um, and let them be used uh, to your glory in Jesus name Amen Thanks You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services Find out more at adventbirmingham.org